0: Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort To the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 45. Bully for you. Today's proverb comes from Dante. I'll read it twice. Fame, without which man's life wastes out of mind, leaving on earth no more memorial than foam in water or smoke upon the wind. Once more. Fame. Without which man's life wastes out of mind, leaving on earth no more memorial than foam in water or smoke upon the wind. I have been thinking about Dante a lot recently. Registration is open now on... GibbsClassical.com for my January class, my spring class, The Divine Comedy for Beginners. We'll be reading the entirety of the comedy. This proverb, this quotation, is one of my favorite lines, one of my favorite quotations from the Hall Comedy. It comes from the Purgatorio. Of all the remarkable lines in the comedy, the one I find myself saying the most often is the subject of an earlier show. If the will won't will, nothing can force it. And that's from Paradise. But this is the idea, this is the single idea from the comedy that I find myself reminding myself of most often. This is a proverb that gets me to work. It's a proverb that gets me back to work, it gets me working, it gets me writing. This quotation kept me from putting off recording this podcast for a day longer. It's a quote that reminds me to do a good job. And I've said this on a few different occasions before, I think, or written on it. I have scores of essays that I've never published anywhere. Scores of essays that I've written for Cersei that I haven't published anywhere because when I finish writing them, I look over them and say, this isn't going to do anybody any good. This isn't worth someone's time, so I scrap it. Sometimes I finish writing the essay, sometimes I quit halfway through. And I, I quit writing them for this reason. Not only does forsaking fame entirely give you nothing to, to do, nothing left to do, it's a squandering of your life. And there are times when I get to the end of something I've written and I think, I have squandered my own time. I will squander somebody else's time if I ask them to read it. So this is a quotation that reminds me to do a good job. It reminds me that there is an excellence of thought that it is my responsibility to pursue. Now it might seem strange to hear someone as venerable and wise as Dante speaking highly of fame. Because when we think of fame, the first thing that comes to mind is shallowness. The first thing that comes to mind is pettiness. Maybe the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word fame is fame by David Bowie. Fame makes a man take things over. Fame lets him loose, hard to swallow. Fame puts you there where things are hollow. That's David Bowie, 1975. And he would know, of course. 1975, David Bowie's fame had been steadily rising for five or six years. He was, by that point, very rich, very... Uh, very much enslaved to cocaine, fast living. He was hobnobbing with celebrities. And he admitted that fame wasn't doing him any good. And songs like Fame by David Bowie have greatly influenced our usage of the word. Bowie might have been the one who characterized fame in the thoroughly modern sense of the word, up to this day but I believe that fame is one of those things like pride or jealousy which is to say that it can be good or bad depending on how we speak of it depending on how we use the word because to say that a man is proud can mean that he's arrogant but at the same time I also regularly tell my students especially young men who turn in sloppy assignments, hey you need to take some pride in your work how many times have you been told that by your parents how many times as a parent have you told that to your children take some pride in your work take some pride in your appearance Um, When I was growing up I rarely heard my father curse. Which is something of an accomplishment given that he was in the armed services. And he listened to men curse all day long. But I almost never heard him curse when I was growing up. I remember one occasion. When I was about to leave, uh, you know, my family home at the age of 19, and I was just about to leave the home, my dad was just coming home and... across the lawn, he waved at me. And he came over to me, and again, I was, you know, 19, 20, I forget. And he says, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to go hang out with some friends. And he said, Are there going to be girls there? And I said, Yes, usually are. And he said, Are you going to go looking like that? And I hadn't really thought of this. I didn't know that I looked like that. And I said, Well, yeah, I was going to go looking like this. And he said, you need to dress like you give a damn. So I went back in. I ironed my shirt. Or changed my shirt. I don't remember. It's stuck with me ever since. And what he was essentially saying was... You need to take some pride in the way that you look. It was good advice. Very good advice. I take... Pride in my church, so I don't disparage my church or criticize my church in front of people who don't go to my church. I regularly tell my children, don't embarrass the family, which is not original to me. That's a bit of parental exhortation that I picked up from Keith McCurdy, who's brilliant and whose work I would highly commend to you. I remember when I heard him in a lecture state that he regularly advised his children, don't embarrass the family. That seemed like good advice. Think more highly of the family than you think of yourself. Think more highly of your school than you think of yourself. Think more highly of your church. And so I encourage my children to take pride in the Gibbs name. But I would say that in the same way that pride has its uses, its right uses, so does fame. So I would like to exonerate fame, or a certain kind of fame, or a certain sort of pursuit of fame. Even though fame has become synonymous with ephemerality and triviality, shallowness. When we think of people who are pursuing fame, we think of Instagram influencers or high school TikTok stars that have half a million followers. That's typically what comes to mind when we think of fame. Now, I'm not going to argue that claiming that Instagram influencers have achieved fame and that fame or that sort of fame is vapid and worthless. I I don't want to argue with that. But I do want to say that that's not the only kind of fame that there is. That there are many kinds of fame, some good, some bad. There are many kinds of pride, some good, some bad. Uh, You could even say the same of jealousy, that there are some forms of jealousy that preserve a marriage and other forms of jealousy that tear it apart. Think once again, though, of pride. A student who's walking across the quad of his school might pick up a stray piece of trash. Uh, because he takes pride in his school. Now, at the same time, a student who refuses to admit that he's wrong in an argument that he's obviously lost could also be accused of pride. And though we could refer to pride in both of these cases, we're referring to entirely different sorts of actions. We want institutional pride. We don't want personal pride. Maybe that's the sort of distinction we're making. So are there right uses of fame? I believe that there are. Back in 2003, Rusty Renault of First Things wrote an essay that I have probably referred to more often in the last 10 years of my career than any other essay. And that's an essay called Fighting the Noonday Devil. Fighting the Noonday Devil is... Rusty Renault's account of Acidia. I have lectured on Acidia many times. Pretty much every interesting thing I have to say about Acidia, I just borrow from Rusty Renault. Now, one of the interesting points that Renault makes in this article, Finding the Noonday Devil, is that there has been, in recent history, I suppose, this sort of remarkable change in what we ought to consider to be the besetting sin of the human race and he makes the case early on in his essay that if you were to rewind the tapes of history a hundred years five hundred years a thousand years that the general christian consensus on the primal sin the first sin the sin that got us sinning was pride And I know that there's all sorts of interesting cases to make for each one of the vices. Um, Pride, avarice, lust, envy, gluttony, anger, sloth. There's an interesting case to be made that each of the vices was the first sin. So I don't think that we're stuck with pride. You could argue that lust was the primal sin. You could argue that envy was the primal sin. But for many centuries... It was a sort of standard Christian account of sin that pride was the first sin. And as the first sin, it became this sort of blueprint for sin. It became this sort of essential sin, pride. But in 2003, Rusty Reno argues in this remarkable essay, Fighting the New Day Devil, that pride is no longer the essential, the great besetting sin of mankind. And he makes this claim because he says people are not interested in accomplishing great things anymore. Accomplishing great things is this older human preoccupation. Renaud says the great modern sin is not pride, it's ascetia. Ascedia is this weird sort of thing. This weird sort of phenomenon. Hard to pin down. And if you ever read anything on Ascedia, you know that it's an unusual term. It's not traded in frequently. Ascedia is like, you know, a pusillanimous spirit. This sort of timidity. But only on the surface. That's... It's really hard to pin Acedia down. Acidia is a timidity, a shallowness, a shallow love, an inability to love deeply. And for Renaud, as opposed to wanting to accomplish great things and therefore accomplishing great evil, the modern man really just wants to be left alone. The modern man is not interested in accomplishing great things. He's not proud in that way. He doesn't think of himself as one who's going to take over the world. I mean, we tell every young person, change the world. But we tell people that they ought to change the world who believe they can do this, but also believe that they can be left alone in the process. It's the great modern hope that I can somehow magically make the world a better place and be left alone in the process. So the modern man doesn't want glory. He doesn't want fame. He wants people to keep back. He wants a private, quiet life. He wants a life where no one makes demands of him, where demands do not have to be met where he can create his own standards and he keeps far away from other people so that he doesn't accidentally, ambiently have their standards imposed on him. I believe that over the last 50 years, maybe over the last 100 years, we've kind of psychologized this, this desire to be left alone. We've psychologized the pusillanimous spirit, the timid spirit, Now, these days, the desire to be left alone is just being introverted. The problem with introvert and extrovert as categories is that they allow us to conceive of ourselves and our desires apart from morality. An introvert does not have to act like an introvert. Claiming that you're an introvert is an excuse to act a certain way and to not be judged for it. Introversion and extroversion are not standards. If an introvert shows up for a party, you cannot tell him, Hey, you're an introvert, Bill, go home. It's not right for you to be here. And that's because modern people love amoral ways of considering their own personalities. That's why we like personality tests. That's the great coup of the personality test. A personality test, the Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, allow us to conceive of ourselves apart from moral standards. There's nothing right or wrong about being an INTJ. If you're an INTJ, you don't have to be. You can remake yourself into something else. You don't have to. Stay as you are. It's not a standard to follow. You don't have to meet requirements on a, on a month-by-month sort of basis in order to maintain your status as an INTJ. There's nothing required of you. Now, we prefer these kind of conceptions of the self because they're not like standard traditional conceptions of the self because standard conceptions of the self across time impose moral standards on us. And this is what makes being an INTJ entirely different from being a Catholic or a Presbyterian. Just a Christian. If you conceive of yourself as a Christian, if that's the way that you think of your personhood, then people can hold you to the standards of Christianity. You can tell someone else, hey, quit flirting with Tom's wife. Bill, you're a Christian, act like it. Being a Christian's a moral standard. Being a Catholic's a moral standard. Being a Presbyterian's a moral standard. You can tell somebody you claim to be a Presbyterian, now act like it. You can't tell somebody you claim to be an introvert, act like it. No moral weight. So, I bring all this up because a lack of desire for fame and glory is not just some benign manifestation of your psychology. According to Dante, it's a recipe for a wasted life. So what is fame? I wanna say that, I wanna go back to this quote here. Fame without which man's life wastes out of mind, leaving on earth no more memorial than foam in water or smoke upon the wind. I wanna suggest that fame here is an ellipsis. That it's a single word that stands for something longer. I want to say that fame is an ellipsis for doing acts worthy of fame. Struggling for goodness, struggling for virtue, struggling to create things of beauty, words of beauty. These are acts worthy of fame. Human beings should make famous those who do good things. You might even look at that as a kind of fundamental human obligation. If somebody does something good, make them famous we all benefit when good people are famous. In the same way that a man can be proud of the right things or the wrong things, a man can pursue fame for good or bad reasons. Now, I also want to say that the pursuit of fame should be appropriate to a man's station in life. And that the standards of fame are determined for you, by your place in the world, by your lot in life. So, a teacher should seek out the fame appropriate to a teacher. That sort of fame is a greater fame than the fame appropriate to a student, but the fame of a famous teacher is less than the fame that's appropriate to a senator. Now, I think that ego takes over when you are discontent with the fame associated with your station in life. When you say, I don't like the cards that I've been dealt, I don't like my lot in life, so I'm going to seek out a fame that's greater than my station. That's where I think things get dicey for you. That's where things get risky. And it often happens that when you seek out a fame greater than your station in the world, you can achieve it, but it typically wrecks you. Most people who achieve fame, not all of course, but most people who achieve a fame that's greater than their station in the world, rise remarkably and then fall apart in the, in the stratospheres of fame. If you were born into the lot of a famous teacher and as a teacher you seek the fame appropriate to a senator, you might get it, but you're not gonna keep it for very long. When a teacher seeks out the fame appropriate to a teacher and achieves it, that's a sustainable, stable fame. But when you seek a fame higher than your station in the world, that's where things begin to fall apart from. There are teachers of greater and lesser fame, there are senators of greater and lesser fame, students of greater and lesser fame, Would you rather have a teacher who didn't care about establishing himself as a great teacher or would you rather have a teacher interested in pursuing greatness as a teacher? I say the same thing about a student. What does it mean to be a great teacher? Every teacher needs to be thinking about this. If you have a teacher who's lost sight of what a great teacher is or if you have a teacher who doesn't know what it means to be a great teacher That's not humility, that's arrogance. You, I don't know, you're looking for a school for your kids? Talk to the literature teacher? What does it mean to be a great teacher? Well, I don't know, I was never interested in being great. Why not? Try harder. (laughs) Make something of yourself. Wasting your life if you're not interested in greatness. You don't care about giving your students a great teacher? You're content for them to have a mediocre teacher and you're going to claim that that's humility. That's arrogance. You're lazy. Get to work. If a teacher is not interested in pursuing, fame, and this is always this cop out that we give. If a teacher is not interested in pursuing fame or the sort of excellence that leads to fame, what are you pursuing? Now this cop out answer is well, I'm not interested in pursuing the greatness of a teacher. I just want to be close to God. Wrong. That's a cop-out. It's not enough to say, I don't care about being a great teacher. I just want to pursue a relationship with God. Because being a teacher is the means that God gave you to pursue a relationship with Him. That's what it means to be a great farmer. That's what it means to be a farmer at all. God gives the farmer a farm and says, Here, find me in this. God gives the writer a keyboard and says, Somewhere in this keyboard, I'm there. You've got to find me there. God gives the teacher books and students and says, This is how you get back to me. It's a long, hard road out of this earth but the teacher has been given books and students and that's your road back to God. So you can't say, I don't care about being a great teacher. I just want a close relationship with God. If you're a teacher, teaching is your relationship with God. That's what God gave you. Now, if you ask any teacher, any good teacher, why they became a teacher, they're gonna start telling you about some teacher they had when they were younger. you ask any competent teacher, why'd you become a teacher? They're not going to say, well, I read this book about pedagogy and I wanted to become a master methodologist. No one cares about methodology. We care about people. You had some great teacher when you were younger. You wanted to be a teacher too. There are only two responses to glory. When we encounter someone with great glory, whether that glory comes from beauty or wealth or talent, no matter what it is, when we encounter somebody else with glory, we want that glory too. And there's two ways that we can get it. We can either liquidate and redistribute the glory of others. You find somebody who's got glory and be like, hey, that's unfair. Let's chop up that guy's glory. We'll each take a piece of it. That'll be fair. That's one path to glory. Or when you encounter someone who is glorious, you can say, I want to do that too. And you follow them. And you pattern your life after them. Every of imitation is an act of becoming that's the only sure path to glory you find the glorious ones and you do it the way Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.